Welcome to another episode of War Stories. I'm Tom. I'm Chuck. And uh, Chuck, we are lucky enough to get someone back. We 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 talked about having him back on. We loved his stories the first time, uh, and uh, very rarely are the, do the stars align for us to get somebody back on so fast. That's that's uh, as interesting as our guest. But uh, you managed to get him back. So who uh, who are we yeah. with this week? We have uh, Glenn, the Florida um, police officer who knows Johnny Depp. Yeah, right. Has multiple books. That's right. Author, <laughs> uh, former TV uh, reality TV star <laughs> on cops, <laughs> on co- cops, and uh, acquaintance of of Mr. Johnny Depp. Now, I looked up, like I said, I looked up a picture and I saw the picture uh, of Johnny Depp in the era that you knew him. And other than a few wrinkles and a few more tattoos, he has not changed very much at all. Not really. No, he's just got a lot more richer. Yeah, he's got he's got a picture in his attic that ages, and he, does, he him him and Dick Clark have the same, you know, or Dick Clark had before he finally died. But that that dude looked young forever. Yeah, he did. So anyway, welcome back, Lynn. How are you? Well, thank you. I've been pretty good. How are you guys? Oh, we've been we've been great. We've uh, had some scheduling ups and downs with uh, some of our co-hosts and, and being in and out of, uh, uh, I guess. Uh, the state in some cases and uh, the hospital in other cases. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's all been good though. And uh, we're all just uh, grateful for every day we spend above ground. Right. That's it. Yeah. Especially yeah. Uh, in this day and age, man, I, I talked right. to somebody uh, recently friend of mine and he's, you know, back still in Southern California and was talking about, uh, you know, the COVID resurgence and I, I, and I'm like, what resurgence? Like, like really? Like people are still, that's still a thing. (laughs) Oh, look, the president has it again. Right. Right. And, and according to him, he has cancer too. Well, yeah, (laughs) no, I think it's just to push that the, the, the new COVID drug, there's this new COVID the oral medication to to help fix the disease. I didn't know this was a disease now, but yeah, yeah, it's a plav, Plavix or some COVID Vix or Plavix or I don't right. know what the fucking thing is. Um, but I'm like, huh. I look over at my wife and I'm like, that's weird. She goes, Yeah, that's really weird. I'm like, I wonder if someone owns stock in that. She's like, yeah, yeah so like they're pushing something. And I was like, sounds mm-hmm. like it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder who that might be. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, that's uh that's a locker room conversation right there for sure. Uh well, Glenn, why don't you uh for our listeners that maybe didn't hear your first episode, kind of remind everybody of your background and uh and uh your your law enforcement uh, career highs and lows, and then we'll 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 jump into some of your cocaine cowboy era stories that, that are just super fascinating to me. All right, well I'm an ex sergeant from the military police. I was stationed in Germany for about five years. Uh short time after that, I joined the uh, a small department in the city called the City of Damia Police Department. I was there in South Florida. Um, about several years later, they were annexed by the Sheriff's Office of Broward County. And uh, I got promoted to sergeant short time after that. And after 25 years with them, I retired. So it was 25 years uh, total or just with uh, Broward County? 
25 years total in policing with the in civilian policing. Right. And that's not including the military time, obviously. Right. So, and uh, Broward County, as we discussed, the era that you were there um, was famous for the, the, the era of cocaine cowboys, uh, cigarette yep. boats and big drug cases. And, uh, oh, yeah. uh, but you <laughs> guys, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you, you were still in the era where mobsters were going to Florida to die. And they still are. Are they real? Is it still a big popular place for mobsters to retire to? Oh yeah, sure. Cause it's a, uh, it's a homestead state. So the feds can, you know, they can't take your homes. So they still live in these gigantic mansions on the water. And every once in a while, you hear one of these old names pop up that they saw them in a restaurant or something like that. Oh, wow. That's crazy. They couldn't, they couldn't take their homes? No. Not under the asset forfeiture laws at all? No, not on the... Uh, Florida's a homestead state, so they can't wow. take your home. You can take everything else. Right, right. That's crazy. Well, um, I, I, I think it's super fascinating to think of, like, because it, it happens, you know, the the Nazis went to South America, the mobsters go to Florida. <laughs> so the weather. <laughs> right, you know. Um that's it's just it's funny how those kinds of things I I guess the migration patterns of uh the criminal mind <laughs> in some ways. They made a TV show about that. Right? The criminal mind. That would actually I think uh I was thinking of that movie My Blue Heaven. Um, where uh, Steve Martin plays a mobster that goes into the witness protection program and has to live in the suburbs. Oh, and uh, yep. I always think of it because they filmed it in the city where I was a police officer before oh. I obviously came on the job. I'm not that old, um, <laughs> but uh, I always think yeah. about, you know, like, can you imagine? And, and this is from a guy, I swear to you, Chuck knows what I'm talking about. My next door neighbor, when I, my last house in Southern California, before I moved, I swear to you, my next door neighbor was uh, somehow loosely affiliated with uh, the Mexican cartel. (laughs) And I don't doubt it. Yeah. So I just always think of uh, how you never, you never quite know who you're living next door to. No, you don't. So especially in Broward County, apparently. So uh, let's, uh, Let's uh let's just jump right into it, I think, because this is this is gonna be super fun. We can start swapping stories right away. Uh, but I want to get back to a little bit of your time on cops because we covered that um as okay. far as how, how the, the nuts and bolts of it worked. But you were like you were early on in the show, first or second season, if I'm not if I'm remembering. It's the first season, the first, first few season. episodes. Yeah. And uh, and that was it. Did you ever do any more than that? Uh, no, they moved on to you know other cities around the county, and then he went to out of state. Okay, and what uh, do you do? You have you ever been recognized uh, at all from like people that you've arrested? They're like, "Hey, you're the guy from Cops." Well, <laughs> not people that I've arrested, but my wife and I just time we go out to dinner or something, and somebody would walk up and go, "Hey, listen, I think were you on Cops last night?" I go, "Yeah, why? <laughs> hey, can we get your autograph?" If you speed, I'll give you a citation with my autograph on it. <laughs> that's, that's true. The only real now, person that really noticed me was the president when I when he was walking into the hotel that time. I don't think you t- did you tell us the story of meeting the president? 
Yeah, I think so. When I, I was working in, in a city, uh, and it was the President Bush, the elder, and his wife were doing something, and the Secret Service, I was working with the Secret Service. Oh, that's, yes. Out of hell. Mm-hmm. And the agent walked oh, by wow. and said, hey, I think I saw you on cops last night. Yes, yeah. Then the, that's... the president says the same thing as he walks by. <laughs> that's cool. Now, was your guys' – I used to watch reruns of Cops all the time with my dad and stuff like that growing up as a yeah. kid and then as a young adult. And um, in Florida, they they did a lot of Cops in Florida. Was your guys' agency the ones that uh, – you guys didn't wear um, the white – back in the day, the, the white shirts, right? No, we did. White shirt, green pants. Was that your guys' agency or your guys' department yeah. that, that yeah. started it off by doing the um, – uh, doing the inspection in front of cops was that your guys's department? What, what, it was what, in Florida, huh? What like, was a, like a uniform and uniform inspection? That's how they know. started off the episode. Was like a yeah. fucking ex- inspection of the coppers, and then they went out on patrol. And I was like, <laughs> huh? That's probably. I remember them doing that with us, but I'm sure they okay. have. But yeah, we were the uh, white shirt, blue and green pants. Now okay. they're not. Now they're all we're all green now. Yeah, because I was like, I watched Broward, the women of Broward County. Like, there was all about the female <laughs> yeah. police officers, which right. I was oh, like, yeah. dang, they're getting into some shit. But um, I was just like, I was confused because I was like, wait, wasn't that Broward that was doing the white shirts and they had their inspection on on camera? And I was like, that's wild. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, they, they probably did it. <laughs> yep, don't to embarrass okay. everybody. It's okay. Right. Well, I, I I remember seeing white shirts on police officers and just thinking it was so weird. You know, I, I mean, growing well, we always up, thought it was a bad idea. Well, what happened makes to you a giant target, target on it. right? <laughs> yeah. They didn't work very well at night. No, it, it, and they didn't give you a night uniform or anything. You wore your jacket. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think uh, there was an agency in Southern California that tried polo shirts and blazers at one point. What? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll, Polish uh, and blazers. Yeah, they they, they tried Polish shirts as like a like a class B, and then a a, a tie with a blazer, and a, instead of a badge, it had like a crest on the pocket and stuff. They, what? That's yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. They that's tried like it. probation status. Yeah, it was. They they probably looked more like hotel security than a police department, but they were <laughs> like. I, I mean, that would be like the the department issuing you a Camry. You know, like here here's your Toyota Camry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've seen some hey, wild issues. What's that? Long the car had air conditioning and a radio. I was happy. Right. I uh, I went to a police academy. One of the guys in my academy class, he was a lateral from uh, another state. And uh, I I can probably say comfortably that other than, you know, going to Europe and, and finding out this is probably the, the weirdest domestic uh, law enforcement agency police car I've ever heard of. He worked for Aspen PD, and they drove Sobs. Oh wow! Oh jeez! Mm-hmm. Sobs. That was a very like. That was not the answer I expected. He's like, yeah, we used to drive Sobs. They were the turbos. They were fast. We loved them. <laughs> yeah, you had to drive wow. Sob. Yeah, the sheriff and Nick Navarro. When I first started, uh, the Sob they wanted to use the Sob car, and they brought that in to test it out. And if you were over like five feet two, it was it was too late. You couldn't fit in the thing. And I'm six five. There's no way I could fit in that little car. CHP so yeah, had a fun, 
CHP had a 5.0 Mustang Fox body. Yep, they did. It was their I know, like high-speed vehicle. Dude, I used to run in it with my dad because he's like, I got to run this motherfucker out because it's old and it smells like gas. And he'd like hop in and he'd just drive me around in it. I'm like, this thing stinks. <laughs> yeah. It was quick, though. It was quick. I remember those CHP Mustangs. They'd, they'd catch up to you. Uh, when my dad's era, they had um, they had pursuit vehicles and there were these big, I think he said they were the Plymouth Torino or something like that. Just a big V8 wow. muscle car. And they, you know, if you needed a pursuit, somebody would go grab the muscle car and, you know, haul ass. <laughs> I'm like, man, those are the days of the Plymouth oh. Belvedere and stuff like that. Those cars were f- probably fast enough as it is, but, uh, you know. Well, now they're issuing the, the Chargers and they got the SUVs now and they're still using the, the Crown Vicks. Yeah. Yeah, I I wouldn't I wouldn't hate on a charger other than the fact that there's no room in them. But uh, fucking garbage, right? They're so garbage. Exactly. I would, you know, there's more room in the in the in the SUVs. However, you know, I, I still have a, a soft spot in my heart for the good old Crown Victoria. You know, even the Chevy remake, Caprice. That's what I drove. They need to remake the Crown Vic so bad because all these other imitation cars suck. The 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 best one, in my opinion. Is the yeah. the version of the the SUV which is on a, a Ford Taurus show chassis, mm-hmm. and all major municipality law enforcement agencies have them. But CHP, because I'm I can only speak for California, CHP has those things decked out, and they sound wild when they take off. I'm like, do ours don't sound like that? Because I've been right next to him talking. They're like, hold on, we got to go. And we're like, just watch them take off. They're going to sound completely different. Because ours are like these little V6 pieces of shit. And theirs was like all souped up, like turboed out and everything like really, really, really fast. Or like supercharged. Or I don't know what the fuck they did under it. But that thing, when it took off, it screamed. I was like, whoa, good. Yeah. Well, they like to chase. Oh, yeah. They can chase everything. Yeah, right. And down here, we, they don't ch- they're not allowed to chase anything. That's well, that's the way the whole thing is going, going isn't nationwide. It? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unless it's a violent felon, yeah. Unless it's a violent felony, you can't chase them. Wow. How do you know it's not a violent yeah. felon? Well, if you're a stolen car, you got to wave goodbye to them. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. Can't go after them. Now, Broward County had some pretty high profile cases in its day, though, didn't it? Uh, well, it had a lot of big profiling cases, sure. Yeah, so I mean, day, yeah. like you guys, like, I mean, you guys in, in a lot of ways, like Miami-Dade, Broward County, there was there was that, that it, it was like a hub for drug trafficking, right? So um, what kind of cases were you guys, because I know you worked um, like a organized crime, major case uh, type unit. And, uh, the, uh, the drug smuggling cases through the airport and the train station. Right, right. Now, uh, you told us about some of those last time. And uh, what were typically, what was typically going on? Like, how, how was, at the time, was it a lot of um, mules? Or were you seeing a lot of, um, like, actual aircraft that were, where the aircraft itself was loaded down with, with uh, bales and stuff like that? Or was, was it human you smuggled on, you know, humans like mules, or was it? Was it? Uh, were they trying to surreptitiously uh, smuggle it in coffee grounds, or what were you guys seeing a lot of back then? Well, it was really mainly the mules coming through carrying 
uh, either on their body or in their in their suitcase. Uh, one time we did get a bunch of kilos out of an airplane, uh, out of the belly of the airplane. That's when we seized the airplane. We got in trouble for it. Right. Now it was mostly uh, people, <laughs> people carrying it on their body or in, in, in uh, computer parts, uh, which was one of our bigger cases. Turned out to be a, a pretty good DEA case later on. Tell us about that. I mean, how, how were they smuggling in the computer parts? And wh- how did you catch them? Well, it was, it was uh, Christmas time, and I was in plain clothes doing my thing. On the, I was on the other side of the x-ray scanner where it becomes a uh, you know, secure area. And I'm standing with a uniform deputy. And we're just kind of watching things going through the x-ray machine. So this guy puts on a, uh, a computer tower, that, you know, the one that sits on the floor. Sure. And when he goes through the x-ray, I look at it and I go, wait a minute, something looks weird here. There's no guts, no wiring, no fans. It's just four blocks inside <laughs> it. And he thought that would work? So when he came out the yeah, so when he came on the other side, we asked the guy, you know, is this yours? He goes, yeah. I go, okay, we're going to open it up. And it was four kilos of cocaine in it. How does so, he think that's going to work? Who knows? You know, they're not smart guys. <laughs> yeah, true. Sometimes I wonder if those so guys are the decoys. Him, and we arrested him. And we arrested him. And uh, we, he, have, we, he rolled over on his next guy. So we did some substantial assistance on him. Where, you know, if he can tell us who the next guy is, maybe the state attorney will lower his charges. Because right now he was charged with, you know, trafficking in cocaine over 250 grams, which leads, which carries a 25 years in jail and a $250,000 fine. Right. Wow. So he rolled over on the guy that he was delivering it to, which was a guy in New York. So we locked him up for the night. We got with DEA and DEA goes, okay, we'll pick up the case. So the next day, we got tickets to go to New York with the bad guy and the dope. And we got an early flight, and we landed in LaGuardia. I think it was LaGuardia. And uh, the guy makes the phone call. Hey, I'm here at the airport. You know, so the bad guy, the other bad guy is going to meet us. So I were all, it was myself, my partner, the DEA guy, and a couple of customs guys from New York. And we're kind of set up around this guy. And I'm laying down on the ground. While my, my head was on my little little overnight bag I brought and uh, the bad guy walks in and kind of steps over me and goes and sits down next to the our bad guy that we brought in and he makes the delivery and we swoop in on that guy and grab him so now the DEA and us we take the guy and we he rolls over on his guys which turns out to be a, a coke lab across from one of the colleges in New York I think it was St. John's University <laughs> so we go over to this house, and of course, unfortunately, there's nobody home. So we figured, well, we'll, we'll sit here for a little while. So we looked inside, and he had this big crate. And in the crate was a bunch more kilos, more uh, cutting agents, uh, the scales, the, all the lab equipment to make all this stuff up. So we waited for hours, and nobody ever showed up. So DEA said, oh, we'll, we'll take it from here. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll leave, and we'll take it from here. But in the meantime, I had the guy take a Polaroid picture of me and my partner holding up our badges and pointing our guns at the camera. And he took a picture of us doing that, and we put it inside the crate. So when the guy opened it up, he would see that somebody was there that shouldn't be there. We don't know what happened, but we had to leave. So it's just kind of our leaving, our leaving a little calling card. 
Did you guys ever get to write? uh, Oh, what what ended up happening with it? I, but that case, after the DEA took it over, we we were out of it at that point. No, I understand. But you said it turned into, oh, you didn't, you didn't find out later what happened. Yeah, we didn't find out later what happened. I'm sure they they made the arrest on, you know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it was kind of ironic is that the guy that we arrested uh, bailed, got out on bail while he was waiting trial and he skipped, he left the country. And about 10 years later, he's coming back into the country, going through customs, and there's a federal warrant for his arrest for skipping out on his warrant, on his bond. The DEA calls me up and goes, listen, uh, we got this guy back in custody. Do you remember you made this arrest? I go, yeah. He goes, well, we need you in New York for the trial. I go, okay, no big deal. So they sent me a ticket, and they met me at the airport in New York, took me to a nice dinner, put me up in a really beautiful hotel. They picked me up the next morning. We had breakfast. We go to the, their office first to do something, then to the then to the courthouse. And I'm sitting in the courthouse in the outside the courtroom, and I'm sitting and sitting and sitting. Now it's lunchtime. They break for lunch. We go to lunch. We come back. I sit again with this customs agent, and the DEA guy comes out and goes, "Okay, you're not needed. The judge doesn't need you." Oh. So I never testified for anything. Thanks for the rest of the day there, and I went home the next day. <laughs> Man, I, I mean, at least you got a free trip out of it. I hate like losing a day off just to drive an hour in a suit to sit there in front of a courtroom yeah. for four hours only to have them say, uh, yeah, you're not needed. You can go. He's pleading. I'm like, you, you fucking knew he was going to plead hours ago, didn't you? You just, you needed me here just in case and you wrecked my day off because of it. Right. Those but I got paid for it. So I wasn't. Well, you got a you got a flight to New York. You got a little mini vacation out of it. That that's probably pretty good. Oh, yeah. that, that, that and it was all overtime, right? Uh, no. Oh, I would have made it a work day. I'm like, no, I'm gonna take this on a work day. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you get? Did you guys? So I looked up some some famous cases back back in the day in in, uh, in Florida and stuff. Did you guys ever deal with um, the Haitian drug lord Jacques Catant? I we I didn't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, because there was a lot of like it wasn't just you know it wasn't just Colombians. It was I mean you guys had Haiti's right there, Cuba's right like it, like it comes from yeah all over the place for you guys right. I mean you're dealing with with just about you know you got uh, Caribbean crime gangs. You've got like you know like Haiti and I don't know. Did you get a lot of Jamaicans? I, you always hear about like some of those island countries with uh with voodoo or with uh you know some of their other crazy like like you you go to a drug uh, the sheriff had a, yeah the sheriff had a Jamaican task force because they were getting a little oh. bit out of control uh so they had their own special guys working that group i didn't do that but so was, what uh, kinds funny of things that you it was also domestically too cuz well the it was also domestic because the uh, outlaw motorcycle gang who had a big, big gang uh, group in the city, they were into dealing a lot of drugs. And, oh, yeah. Uh, as as and, motorcycle. And the gang unit. Do. Yeah. And, you know, what was ironic is, though, that they did their crime stuff, but they never bothered the cops. If there was ever any uh, police interaction with those guys, they were very cool, calm, and collective. And even, I even had one guy help me out in a fight once. 
when I was a oh. rookie cop. I dragged this guy out of a bar and I'm rolling around with this guy on the street. And then all of a sudden, this big guy comes from behind me, grabs him, throws him around and helps me get him handcuffed. And it was an outlaw motorcycle guy. Jeez. <laughs> oh, so I said, hey, thank you. I appreciate the help. <laughs> right? I mean, I guess, you know, any port in a storm, really. I mean, you know. But see, oh, yeah. there were there, there's for, you know, you, you talk about an escalation. You look it over the years and you look at the, the way the quote, quote unquote uh, code used to be there there was kind of a, a an ethic a, a street code between law enforcement and the criminal element and and like organized crime had their code you know old school street gangs had their code and you didn't violate it and part of that was you know obviously you don't rat on your friends stitches you know snitches get stitches but also part of that was you know a certain line with the cops where you know each organization had yep. their own kind of line of how you would deal with law enforcement. But then you get into obviously what you're talking about, the Jamaicans um, where you get into MS 13 or you get into 18th street, you get into some of these more virulent organizations where they decide, you know, screw it. We're going to take it a step up. I remember the first time my dad told me what a Colombian necktie was. And, you know, <laughs> if, you know, maybe Glenn, you could explain that for the listener who doesn't make me know what a Colombian necktie is. It's a, I don't, I, it might be an antiquated term. I don't even know if they say it anymore. I don't know. It's like cutting out your tongue and, and yeah, slashing your throat open. <laughs> they they and, slash yeah, you. stick the tongue out of your stick your tongue out of your, the hole in your throat. Yeah, out of your throat. Yeah, yeah. I was right. threatened with one. Yeah, really. So it's still hey, on the job. It's still. Yeah, a, I couldn't uh, testify. <laughs> In court because of it. <laughs> really? Le- right. Legit threat, yeah. From a Hells Angel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because oh, I arrested yeah. him. I can well, what kinds of things? I mean, for, for the Jamaicans to get their own task force, that must have been pretty uh, pretty escalated, you know, level of violence and level of kind of criminal activity. Yeah, they were into a lot of shootings. Yeah, they were doing a lot of shootings in the, in the county, in certain the Jamaican section of the county. And uh, so I think that's what sparked the sheriff into having a specialized unit work on them. And was it effective? Did they, did they really, like a lot of times when you stand up a task force, you know, you do it for show, but sometimes they're very effective and they, they knock down. They pretty much shut them down. So they put all the, most of the bad guys away. And then the other was kind of just faded away after a while. Now, of course you think Jamaica, you think weed was that where they bulk marijuana, traffickers or or were they into all kinds of stuff um so what i remember they were more into the marijuana trade mm-hmm. uh and guns oh okay well i mean if they're shooting gang that that would make sense that they'd be into guns right they're yeah they, they were, <laughs> <laughs> so in in your in your career you've seen uh, i mean you are also a hostage negotiator right and we talked yes. about that last yep. time, which you you confirmed uh, that the negotiator is uh, as I I like the movie, and you confirmed that it's a, a decently made movie as far as negotiating stuff goes. Um, yes. But uh, as far as 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 your tactical uh, experiences and stuff like that go, were you strictly dealing with the hostage negotiator stuff or were you were there other instances where you had to get hands-on tactically with with the team you mean during a negotiation 
Yeah. Uh, no, and, and we, well, maybe during a negotiation or, or you know, because you always see that the hush, I'll go in, you know, or you see that some of those kind of things. Was there ever a time oh, where you all- had to get, yeah, I figured that was all, you know, <laughs> yeah. Hollywood BS, but are there times at, e- e- when you're involved in the tactical team, either as a negotiator or just a tactical team member where they're like, no, nope, you got to, we need you for something else, or you have to, you have a different job entirely here now, or how, how does that dynamic work? Well, yeah, once you're, if it's a hostage call out, it's a SWAT call. Uh, the negotiators go on all the calls. Right. And um, it, it really depends on what you're dealing with. I mean, I dealt with, have to talk to people from jumping off overpasses or on top of a hotel and I'm hands on with them. I'm not doing it from a distance. Uh, you know, eventually we get them off and, and grab onto them and put them on the ground. But other than that, it would be just negotiating to the point where they can somebody can come out and then the SWAT guys would handle them. Right. I think of famous incidents. You know, you've got the uh, you got the guy who had the gun shot out of his hand by a sniper. You know, I remember that. You've yeah. got the guy who was in negotiations with SWAT and he had the, the, the bombs around his neck, you know, it was the yeah. p- famous, the pizza delivery robbery right. or whatever it was, you know, or now there's this, in fact, we just talked about it on locker room, but uh, we're, we're doing research to kind of talk about it on one of our episodes is this one. in uh, I, I think it was Minneapolis. We were just talking about where the, the guys in negotiations for, you know, six and a half hours and then snipers end up uh, taking them out. And yeah. uh, what, What's that dynamic like? Are you aware at? Are you aware of everything as the negotiator, or are you compartmentalized? Where you know uh, you're just focused on your thing, and if there's other plans going on, you may not be aware of it. Uh, well, yeah, that's probably that's partly true. Uh, we would be is, we're totally separate from what, what the SWAT guys were doing. We don't want to give away any information by accident. What they might be doing tactically. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing we would really be involved with is the uh, the SWAT commander telling us, like, to keep them talking, or uh, so we could we're going to make a, a dynamic entry into the house, or or do something else. But you know, they don't tell us their tactics. Oh, they don't right. want to accidentally, accidentally blow it. So you'd be given a heads up if they were going to be like doing something, so you wouldn't be caught off guard, or whether you just right. be caught off guard. Yeah. Yeah, so you're not talking to the guy, and then the sniper just takes him out mid sentence. <laughs> like, That's cool. Hey, wait, I'm not talking to you. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of uh, that brought you into you know sharing your stories and 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 uh, telling these stories. You know that kind of brought you into a world where you decided to write, um, and you became an author. And yes. And and how many books I, I have you Four. have you published at this point? Four. Now, what Four. what kind of uh, what kind of books are they? They're nonfiction. Uh, one is a, a true crime drama. I was involved with back in the eighties, and then the other ones are uh, different. <laughs> and so, uh, what's tell us about your true crime book? Was that your first one? Yeah, the first one is called The Hurt. Uh, it's a, a true story about a. When I was working in the rock and roll club, the club is called the Agora Ballroom. Right. That's the one you told us about last time with Johnny Depp, right? Right. It was a pretty famous club. Uh, We had thrown some people out of the club and uh, some girls, and they wound up getting hurt. And then they tell their boyfriends that they got beat up, which wasn't true. And then the boyfriend said, oh, I was going to come back here and kill everybody or shoot up the place. So later on in the night, the guy comes by with a friend that does a drive-by shooting. 
Oh, yes. The- I remember. Okay. So you wrote a book about that incident. Right. Okay. Yeah, so I go ahead. Yeah. Up, first, you wrote it up as a movie script. And then I got it transformed into a book. Right. So the guys right. do the shooting. One of the bouncers winds up getting killed. I run over to him. I grab onto him. I try to I put my finger in the bullet hole in his back, trying to stop the bleeding. It didn't work. Finally, medics and police come to take him to the hospital. He dies on the way to the hospital. On the way out, the uh, the guys get into a crash uh, the down the street. The police respond to the accident, not knowing these guys were just involved in a murder. They do the accident report and they leave. And then eventually they get rid of the car and the gun and they right. leave the state. Right. And about a short time later, they're extradited back to the state for trials. And <clears throat> and um, one guy took three trials to get him convicted. Because the first two were hung juries. Then the next guy was convicted on the first one on first degree murder. They both get sent up to North Florida to start where the prison is. And about seven years later, one of the guys gets raped in prison and he contracts AIDS. And they plead with the family, pleads with the governor for a pardon, which he gives right. them so he can go home and die. The other guy escapes escapes prison about a year later in a laundry truck and is on the run for about 10 years until he's recaptured and brought back to prison. And then the book follows all the antics back in the club, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll that was going on in the club. And that was that, that was the first book. And now your other books are not true crime? No. The other ones are made up. The other one is a, is a uh, one that's 25 years later. It's called The Hurt. Uh, the real story behind The Hurt and the rise and fall of extremists. Oh. And that one takes place oh. 25 years after the club closed. The same owner that closed it reopened it, but not knowing that he's a member of Antifa. Oh, and now that's wow. fictionalized. Right. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So you wrote a fictionalized story and novel based on you know you took a real life event and then what if it 25 years later right oh okay has there been any traction on the first book you wrote because you originally wrote it as a script and then they said they go hey write it as a book and maybe it'll become a movie has there been any traction on that ever coming Uh, onto the screen no not really it's it's extremely hard unless you have unless you know somebody and i kind of know somebody but doesn't do any good uh, but actually, just yesterday, I did send out the script to some lady uh, in California that she goes, uh, this looks really interesting. Let me look into this. Uh, so oh. I said, listen, if you could just take it, I'll just give the script to you. You can develop it, rewrite it. Just give me a, a small percentage if it goes to the screen, if it goes anywhere. Right. And she you goes, okay, option it kind of thing. Yeah, option it out and see what happens. And I said, I sent her a copy of the book also. I said, read the book. Let me know what you think. So far, I've had a lot of good reviews on the book. We'll see what happens. I might as well, right? Now, how yeah. did you how did you decide to go from being? A, I'm assuming you did all this post retirement, or did you actually do some of this yes. while you were still working? No, it was a post retirement. Okay, and how did you decide after you retired you were going to write a true crime book? Well, it took many many years later. Uh, I actually met this girl who happened to be a um, a waitress in the club at the time, but she was working in the clerk's office. And I was there on a court case. And she goes, uh, hey, Glenn, how you been? I haven't seen you in a long time. Did you, ever, did you ever write anything about the shooting? I go, you know, I'm thinking about it. And it's you know, many years later. I'm, I was thinking about it. And I go, all right, let me, finally, I did it. Mm-hmm. Right? And I just did it. It was easy okay. to write because I was there. Right. Sure. Now, did those events um, 
influence any of your decisions when you were working the street or, or, I mean, cause that was obviously, that was not in the performance of your duties as a, as a deputy sheriff for Broward County. No. That was separate. You know, you were, right. you told us you were working a side gig. Um, yeah. And, and does that, do those events have um, a way of influencing or what you saw have a way of kind of coloring your views uh, when you're working the street or, or did it, did it kind of not, it was kind of separate. I think it was separate. Okay. It was just two totally different things. Uh, just that it, it, you know, that was before law enforcement. So it kind of taught me how to deal with people, you know, when they're not in the right state of mind Mm. or they want to fight or they want to make threats. Because, you know, later on, I had to deal with that in law enforcement. And I had never, did it change your mind at all regarding traffic um, accidents? <laughs> right. That's what we <laughs> talked about last time is you never know, like, right. He, this guy had a crash and the cops were completely unaware of what he had just done. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, you so know, it's, it's, not really with it, you know, the accidents, you, know, you show up on the scene of an accident, you handle it. And if something looks out of place, you start asking questions about it. But uh, most of the time, it's just an accident. Because this is something I just discussed with um, uh, a, a guy I'm getting to know who's a retired law enforcement as well. And uh, one of the things we were discussing is how certain events that you go through, whether it's uh, an officer involved shooting or um, being present when an officer is shot and killed or having someone you're close to get, you know, gravely injured or, or even killed in the line of duty, it, it changes your perspective and it alters how you view the job, you know, for the rest of your career. And not yeah. always, um, I, I wouldn't say not always for the better, you know, if it, if it makes you a sharper police officer, if it makes you a, a better investigator if it makes you a safer cop then it's then that's good but sometimes the the downside of that is you know everything's got a every good has a bad side i guess and some of that is you you know you you take it home it changes your your personal life as well um did you experience any of that kind of stuff or um did you have any events that kind of other than it, this one was not work related but did you have any of those kinds of events while you were working where it just kind of was a big enough uh, influence that it changed your views on how you were a cop? Well, I, you know, I always reflect back when my, one of my guys on my ship was killed in the line of duty. He was hit by a car on a right. traffic stop. And I go, well, you know, maybe you learn from your mistakes. You know, maybe, maybe he shouldn't have been standing on the traffic side of the car. Right. Maybe he should have been standing on the other side where there's no traffic coming by. But things have been different. Who knows? You know? But, uh, right. and actually after that incident, when I made a traffic stop, I didn't approach on the driver's side. I always approached on the passenger side. So I wouldn't be hit, hit by a car. Now, is it a guarantee? No. No. Right. And that's a, I, that's a big debate. And I think, um, you know, I've, cause I've heard cops always, you know, always, always, always approach on the passenger side. And then I guess, no, 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 always, always, always approach on the driver's side. And my philosophy on it was always, always, always make a determination once you stop the car, what the safest, most effective and uh, best tactical advantage right. for that individual traffic stop is. Yeah. Every, uh, every incident is different. Yeah. And then it makes a big difference whether or not you're working, you know, 
municipal city or if you're working a highway or or whatnot because like look at chp they and i go to chp a lot because i have a lot of experience with chp because my dad and stuff like that but he was always saying you know you never cross in between your bumper and your front bumper and their rear bumper you always come back and double around your backside Mm -hmm. of your vehicle come along the passenger side away from the traffic and approach Mm -hmm. um, their car uh, on the passenger side. So you stay away from traffic and you don't get hit by a drunk driver because they had many uh, officers get hit by, you know, squished in between two vehicles, a police vehicle and the person's vehicle. Oh, yeah. I'm a drunk driver because of the lights and stuff like that. But then you go and work, you know, in a in a municipal city like I, I did and you approach on the driver's side, you know, um, and unless it's it's not advantageous to do so. And then you have to make a determination. Okay. Well now I'm going to go into the passenger side. Um, but many of the times you're working with partners and you guys both approach. And so it's different dynamics and different training and different agencies and in different locations. So it's like, and I, and I right. think back to what Tom just said, make the determination what the safest route is going to be and the most tactically yep. sound one, and then do that and have that in your mind you know, have a couple different ways it can go that way. When you get out, you're not stuttering. You're not figuring your, your stuff out on the fly. You kind of yeah. already have made up your mind, which is the safest route, but honestly, in this job, it, anything's dangerous and traffic stops are the most dangerous thing that you can do in Absolutely. law enforcement. Oh yes. Yeah. Nothing. Tra- always, I feel going to say they're routine traffic stops, nothing routine about them. Yeah. I, I no. it should be called. I'm, I'm going to do a shirt. This is Schrodinger's traffic stop. The guy in the car is is both a violent felon and not a violent felon simultaneously. You know, Schrodinger's cat. The cat either is or isn't dead, but you don't know until you open the box. So it, yeah. until you open the box, you have to assume or you at that point, you know, the, the cat exists in both states because your mind has to believe that it's it can be either or. Well, it's the same thing with traffic stops. You, you, as you approach that car. You know, the person in the car both is and isn't a violent felon who's ready to kill you at any second because you don't right. know. And even then, when you say, hi, hello, how are you? My name's so-and-so here. Do you know why I stopped you? Uh, they might appear completely code for, completely compliant. And and yep. then just the next second they turn on you, and you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> you were talking about walking between cars earlier. Uh we had a guy on my on my shift when I first started with the police department doing a big drug sting in the city. And this guy was a, just brand new. He was a rookie cop. He came from California. He was the stand-in double for Lou Ferrigno in The Hulk. Wow. He was a big, big guy, right? Mm-hmm. And he was doing his drug sting, and he's standing between the bad guy's car and the police car. And the guy floored it backwards and, and caught him and severed his leg. Holy shit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's a, that's a big reason right there. Well, okay. So start with make them put the car in park and turn it off. You know, yeah. uh, don't ever let them leave the car running. Right. Um, don't cross take between the, the two cars, you know, nope. take their keys. I, I was always taught, I mean, not, not just that you can get smashed between the two cars, but that the lights from your police car silhouette you and give away your position. Sure. You know, oh, yeah. if you, if you cross behind your police car, you have the the wall of light. It's tactical lighting. You know, you, they, they don't know where you are at any given moment, unless you're wearing a bright white Broward County 1980s <laughs> uniform shirt, in which case so, you're practically glow in the dark. Exactly. On, on that topic of silhouetting and, and, you know, big targets that give you away, there has been a constant debate in municipal policing. And it is when you're driving down a street, 
most agencies teach you, hey, we're going to black out completely. We even have switches in our car that turns off our brake lights. So no one can see our brake lights when we hit the brake lights. And then there's, there's, you know, there's debate with that. Well, why wouldn't you just turn on your floodlights and all your, all your bright floodlights to come out and your, turn your high beams on because then no one can see you're blinding everybody. And, you know, or just turn your high beams on because now you're blinding everyone. No one can tell if it's a cop because when you're driving down the city streets, there are overhead lighting, there's ambient lighting around, and you can clearly tell of a black and white with a light bar on top. Unless you're a slick top, you can see that light bar and it's giving you away. And now people can see you coming up and have a chance to set up on an ambush or whatever. So there's this debate going, do you black out? When do you black out? When do you turn your high beams on? And I was always like, no. You never turn your high beams. You always black out. You hit the blackout switch and you just creep and you try to catch people slipping. Well, that might work. However, if they're waiting or they have a lookout and they look and they're like, that's a police car because I can see lights on top, you know? Yep. You know, so it's like this big debate. And I tried it a few times where I was going to try to sneak up on people, which would work better. Let me turn my high beams on and let yep. me black out. And yeah, I, I caught a lot of people with high beams. Oh, yeah. Really? Well, I, yeah, I used, I've done both, but let me, tell you, let me tell you something that might make you laugh, Chuck, uh, or maybe it won't surprise you at all. Our agency disabled all the blackout buttons. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. Why? You know why? Because yeah. the highway patrol told them that blackout buttons on the car were illegal and there was no exemption in the vehicle code for a oh. police car to be allowed to black out. Oh, come on. <laughs> what? That's yeah. ridiculous. It's Man, true. He does some wild shit, dude. They're, they're crazy. They, <laughs> so they our agency capitulated and they were like, yes, there is no exception in the vehicle code. And so for liability purposes, it's like, yeah, if we black out and somebody hits us because we didn't have any lights on the car, it's our fault. Oh, great. That's so great. they, they removed the blackout, uh, but well, the button was still there. It just was yeah. non-functional. And well, so we still you know we would still creep you know drop down to like our fog lights and try to creep but i think it all depends if you're on a if you're on a busy city street and they've got those orange you know sodium vapor lamps that you're not blacking out and doing you know anything incognito under that then yeah absolutely you know use the the opposite route yeah and no one can tell it's crazy how many people have to sneak up and because if you really look at it when you're patrolling a city street how many people blind you and you have to hit them with your spots or your floods you're like what are you doing like turn that off yeah. but i would i would turn my stuff on people would be flashing their lights at me and i'm like no dude i'm patrolling <laughs> however going back to what you said about chp and your agency doing that funny thing something similar with my agency in regarding to vehicle codes and things like that and who's going to be at fault if you get rear-ended or something like that or car crashes into you Going on a call, and this might make you laugh, going on a call, they were telling us, you need to find legal parking and park your police vehicle on a call because if you say you you double park next to some parked vehicles on a, mm-hmm. on a, on a two-way, um, like on a two-lane highway or, right. or two-lane city street, not even a highway, two-lane city right, street, just two-lane city and street. someone rear-ends you, we're at fault, and that's liability that we want to do. So you need to find parking. I'm like, so we were going to uh, emergency or you know, maybe like a code two call, which is, it's an emergent situation, but it's not where it warrants, you know, a code three response lights and sirens, but it's, Hey, let's get there. There's something funny going on and you can't um, find parking. Now that person's sitting there side waiting, like when, when do you do it? And a bunch of us were like, no, nah, we're not doing that. We're going to just get park wherever. And then it came down to, okay, well, we see the issue, but if you're going to get lunch, finally go parking. You're <laughs> well, oh, nice. Yeah. I mean, that's see, so that's a case of you know 
cops being idiots and ruining it for everybody else. Like, come on, if you can find a place to back your car in, you know, find a place to back your car in. Don't freaking double park just to go get a taco from Tito's, you know, especially now with everybody. No one wants to take pictures of everything. Yeah. Oh yeah. Not one person was doing that, but you would, you, you'd go to a call, right. And there would be an apartment complex. Say you're going to a new apartment complex. So you park just a little bit off because you don't need to park two houses away because it's an apartment complex and they ain't going to see your ass coming anyways. So you park and maybe it's a, a fire lane, but this is the only parking on the street and at least you're near a curb. You would come out and people would be leaving nasty grams. You'd be filming you oh, yeah. like, hey, this and that. And you're like, we're on a call. Like, doesn't matter. It doesn't exempt you right. from parking. And I'm like, I'm going to park here. I don't care. You, yeah, did you, you see the license plate? plate? It said exempt. It literally yeah, says and exempt. And I would yeah. walk around and be like, look at that. California exempt. That yeah. means I can park here. <laughs> did you, Glenn, did you guys have what we call the E-plate? It was a, back in the day before it said California exempt, it it had a E with an octagon around it and then the license plate number. And, uh, you know, those. yeah, those yeah. were the E-plates. And the joke used to be, my dad told me is back in the day, people go, what's the E stand for? And he goes, everyone but me. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have E-plates. We didn't have those. <laughs> Your car is just registered normally and. Yeah, it had the sheriff's tag on it. That's all. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it was, might as well. It was kind of the same thing. It had a special plate that you could only get yeah. if you were a sheriff's car. And, right. Yeah. As well, far as, oh, go ahead, Chuck. I was going to say that's probably because they're doing, you know, like in in, in Florida and so there's so many drugs that they're like, yeah, we're just going to take this out, you know, like and use this car. Whereas in other agencies, they have to go through the full like registration process, and and then a lot of these smaller agencies are like, nah, it's ours now. We just take the sticker. Good to go. Yeah. You want to hear something funny? My undercover vehicle is a coal plate, right? So when you, it, for us, it was uh, when you, you, you could have one of two ways, right? The vehicle could be registered confidential and come back to the police department. But in yep. my case, because we were, you know, such a deep kind of undercover unit, all of our vehicles were cold plated. So they actually came back to fictional people. So if somebody if 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 somebody ran it in law enforcement and there was a mole, which we actually did have a mole in our unit at one point, which was really? crazy. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, so uh, if somebody ran it, my my truck was registered to uh, a man named Harley Davidson. <laughs> <laughs> and it had a fictional address. Yeah. But uh, no, it's, it's seriously, we um, and I, I don't I don't know if I've ever told the story, but it's a much longer story. But ultimately, we had some information make it out of our office that we weren't sure how it had gotten out. It was very compartmentalized. Our unit was made up of uh, detectives from several different police departments and police agencies. Our office was offsite. It was in an office building that housed like everybody always asked us, you know, we always see these like scummy looking dudes coming and going from this office on the third floor that isn't listed on the marquee and the door, you know, doesn't have a number and da 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 major narcs. Yeah. yeah. It was, you know, our narcotics team and uh, ve- nobody in the building knew what it was, uh, but uh, yet still somehow the information is getting out. Well, it turns out that uh, one of the agencies, one of the police departments, not only provided a detective, it also provided support staff in the form of a records clerk who functioned as the administrative assistant for the task force commander. So she, you know, filed our reports properly and kept, you know, records properly and handled messages and all that kind of stuff. You know, she was it. She was all we had. 
Uh, and she was great. And we all thought she was the bee's knees and, you know, brought her flowers on her birthday and cupcakes and cookies and all that kind of stuff. Turns out she had a secret meth habit. And we only found out one time because they <laughs> yanked her out of the, the, the DA's office, showed up, yanked her off of her desk, searched her purse, found a meth pipe, dragged her. They, they had already developed enough probable cause to drag her back to the station and basically say, you're the leak and you've been trading meth for info and we want we want your we want everybody that you're affiliated with and that's how she went down and it was a i talk about you know moments that are like eye-opening you know you we talked a little bit about um you know working narcotics and narcotics chuck you said yeah you pointed your gun at a narcotics detective who was doing a surveillance but they hadn't put it out over the radio right well sometimes narcotics cops to their detriment but understandably so are hesitant to put out that kind of stuff because right. they're afraid of the information getting out being yeah, burned. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> well, funny thing was, is something similar. My agency and it, it honestly, this, this, the leaking of info happens so frequent in law enforcement that it's, it's, it's freaking crazy. And it's eye opening. You're like, what the fuck? There were our narcotics unit. Um, and another, um, areas, narcotics unit kept, uh, trying to do stings and, and raids on these, on these locations. And they're like, fuck, we keep coming up empty, keep coming up empty. And it was starting to get to a point where like every time we develop a plan and we go to hit the locations, we keep coming up empty. Their shit's moved. They're gone. They're not there. Mm-hmm. And, and finally like, dude, we have to have someone. So I don't know, something happened and they ended up getting at least one person they knew that was frequent in the area, got into their phone, was able to search their phone and found out that there was info coming from a number and giving them every time they were getting ready to hit multiple locations. Like mm. it came back to a fucking copper and the copper. I mean, I never know knew who this person was, but I don't know who the, who the, who the, the yeah, you don't know specifics. You didn't know him, but you just exactly. That, it's, yeah. it's shit you hear of. And you're like, Holy shit. Like, yeah, yeah that dude's no longer, or that female is whoever it was. I don't know. Male or female is no longer with, the department anymore and then you start hearing more crazy shit you know from the you know police officer underground mm-hmm. all these crazy things that happen everywhere and you're like what the fuck yeah it's wild it is i had, crazy the, same, I had shit. the same issue same issue i had a guy on my shift he was a retired new york cop he came to work with our department and we're doing a drug sting and i'm down the street and they go, okay, move in, move in. We do. They they pull in. They stop the car. They get these two guys out. And when I roll up on the scene, I see one of my guys from my ship in handcuffs on the ground. And I go, I go, what's going? What's this? Well, it turns out that this guy, this this officer, was the personal driver for the biggest cocaine dealer in the city. Man. And he he looked at him. Sarge, I, I didn't do anything. I said, what are you in handcuffs for then? <laughs> right. So he was driving this guy around doing drug deals in the city. Yeah. And I go, what the hell, man? Come on. He, he, a retired New York cop. And now you're doing this. Now you're going to go to jail. Right. Well, there was your first thing. He's from New York and NYPD <laughs> back in that era was not known for its uh, uh, reputation uh, for, I mean, what's New York's finest taxi service, Serpico, all those, like yeah. that era was not, was not great in in the nypd history they've they've done a lot of cleaning up in the last oh, yeah. 30 years but uh 
You know, there was there was a, there was a time where New York PD was not the not the agency of you know. That's why you look at um, you know you look at uh, the era of Adam Twelve, and you look at you know LAPD coppers, high and tights, you know, big shoulders, right. clean uniforms, belts with keepers, giant oh, yeah. shoes, going to inspection. You look at New York cops from that same era. It's baggy shirts. Oh, Belts that are hanging sideways, leather gear that they've inherited from five other cops with the polished gold chain, you know, like they're going on patrol in Mackinac jackets, wearing wearing flannel shirts under their peacoats, you know. You know what a lot of that was attributed to? Lack of pay. Well, I'm sure it wouldn't surprise me. No, and they don't. And then you got a 40,000 officer strong department yep. and you're only paying your guys like 30, 40 grand a year. Right. They have to have other jobs. I've talked to so many NYPD and uh, NYFD guys that they have to have a second job yeah. just so that they can get by and feed their family. And I'm like, that's crazy. Yeah. Anybody crazy. that works this job and ha- is for your department's doing it wrong. I mean, unless you're oh, yeah. like a volunteer police department, if you're a professional police department, you need to make sure because otherwise you're just inviting corruption. You are. You, if yeah. your cops have yep. to do something else to pay the bills, they're serving two masters and that's just inviting corruption. So listen, in the sheriff's office now with just a high school diploma, you can easily make a hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah. I mean, yeah. As, as long as you're you sane and you pass background check, jobs and you or relatively sane. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Glenn, where can people get your book? And it's called. Uh, well, it's, all, all, all of them are on uh, Barnes and Noble online, or Amazon, or Kindle and Nook. If you want to have a read book, and also from the publishers uh, exlibris.com. Okay, and, and what uh, are the names of all of them? Okay, the first one was the Hurt, uh-huh. and that, then the next one was the sequel to that one called the Hurt: The Real Story Behind the Hurt. And the rise and fall of extremists. Uh, the other one is called uh, "Look a Quarter." It's an autobiographical anecdotes of my crazy life from living in New York through the military through the policing to now. And then another one is a political thriller called "Operation 1600," about a corrupt U.S. president that gets us into a nuclear war with Russia. Oh shit! Is, it, uh, <laughs> is his name Brandon? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, you guys should definitely check those out. Um, Chuck, you have our dedication this week. I do. Um, pop it up real quick. <clears throat> Wi-Fi is slow. Yeah. Right. All right. So this uh, this week's dedication um, goes out to Bradley Stephen Henry Johnson, Deputy Sheriff Brad Johnson, to come to a gunshot wound sustained the previous day at about five p.m when he and another deputy were shot by an auto theft suspect near the intersection of Alabama 25 and Bulldog Bend Road. Deputies pursued the stolen vehicle until it stopped, and the man opened fire, striking Deputy Johnson and the second deputy. The man then fled on foot and remained at large until being taken into custody approximately 16 hours later. Deputy Johnson remained on life support until his organs could be donated. Deputy Johnson had served with the Bibb County Sheriff's Office for eight years. He is survived by his fiance and two children and his parents. He was 32 years old. He had an eight-year tour. And um, the incident date was Wednesday, June 29th, 2022. 
I mean, too many, too many, too many. It's it's, it's so become okay day. to go open season on cops these days. Did you see the latest with the uh, four year old? It was uh, two cops arresting the oh. dad in a traffic yeah. stop, and the four year old pulls a gun and shoots at him. Right. Yeah, it doesn't hit him. Hits the building. No, but took a pot shot at him. Four year old pot shot at cops because they were arresting his dad. They wonder where he learned that from. Yeah, right. That's the world we're they living should, in. So they should put a second charge onto that guy. You know, you know, um, child endangerment, attempt murder, because he's teaching his his child this. Because no four year old should ever feel a need to take, pick up a just take his kid away from him. Take his kid away from him. Hopefully, they will. What a what a what a shithead. Well, oh. uh, with regards to uh, deputy, rest easy, brother. We've got it from here, uh, Glenn. Thank you yes. once again. It's it's a pleasure talking to you. It's fun to yeah, talk about. Uh, and it's like like I said, different eras of police work are, are you know my dad's era, your era, you know my era, Chuck's. Era, they're all just they're all similar in our experiences, but they're also different in how we dealt with it. You know, uh, yep. my dad's era, you know, similar to yours. If if somebody said something about your wife or your kids, you could you know drag him by the short and curlies into a dark alley and threaten his life. You know, nowadays. They can't do that anymore. Well, nowadays you have to assume that if you do it, uh, it's all caught on camera. <laughs> yeah, of course. So, yeah, my air policing that they told you to assume that it was all being caught on camera. In right. this day and age, uh, it is all caught on. I mean, all of it. Oh, yeah. everything. People whip out their phones, and and there's 17 different angles. Not to mention oh, yeah. the fact that they yep. gave cops body cams to film it all. Yep. And that too. Mm-hmm. A lot of cases, thank God they did, because they're just you know exonerating the hell out of us in in many yeah. many cases. So. Crazy in some cases, yeah. But um, oh, yeah. So uh, all right. we appreciate you coming on, Glenn Chuck. Uh, why don't you uh, close us out? Yeah. Well, thank you all for listening today. If you like today's podcast, please go follow us on our Instagram at War Stories at War underscore Stories underscore Official and our Facebook at War Stories Podcast. If you already follow us and share our post and our info, you can also go to the link in our bio on Instagram and Facebook to reach. All of our socials, our media, and our website. Our podcast is on all major streaming podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube. If you want to support us, please go to our website at www.warstoriesofficial.com. Grab some gear. Um, we still have some movie hoodies, some shirts, patches, and stickers left. And we're going to be having some tank tops. That's in the work. Getting that finalized. And some hats. Uh, we'll doing. Um, if you want to be featured on our show and you think you have a story or want to share your story, please go to booking.warstories at gmail.com. Uh, I saw that some of you guys have been putting your stuff onto the War Stories official website, but please remember booking.warstories at gmail.com is mm-hmm. where you want to send your info uh, to be featured on the show. If you have already sent a message on the website, please go back, copy and paste it, and just booking.warstories at gmail.com. Send me your story and I can get you booked. We are yep. looking for law enforcement, corrections, dispatchers, fire, medics, and veterans. If you have a friend who you think would be a great fit, let them know about us and give them our booking email. If you've already been on the show and you want to come back and you're waiting for me to give you a ring, don't just, I'm going through them, but just uh, send me a follow-up email. Hey, I came on. I would like to come on again and uh, send me what story you want to want to share and we'll get you booked on there. Again, thank you for the support and stay safe. Yep. And uh, thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Glenn. And until thank our next episode, much. come home with your shield or on it. <laughs>